Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you're very welcome to The Tonight Show. The tarnished uh, Leo Varadkar has spoken out following the Guardi's decision to send leak inquiry file to the DPP. I did not uh, commit any crime. I did not do anything corrupt. In fact, I didn't even do anything self-interested. Uh, and I think when this is over, that will be clear to any reasonable person. Housing dominates, dominates in the dial today as a report finds rents increased by 9% for new tenancies towards the end of last year. Sinn Féin's Mary Lou Macdonald says the issue is a social catastrophe. And I have said it so many times in this chamber and I want to say it again, this is a social catastrophe. The EU accuses Russia of blackmail as the country halts gas exports to Poland and Bulgaria and socialisers left stranded as catching a cab becomes a challenge for the nighttime economy. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag TonightVMTV. First up tonight, speaking at an event in Silicon Valley, California, the tarnished Leo Varadkar spoke out about the recent decision by the Gardaí to send the leak investigation file to the DPP. Our economic correspondent, Paul Colgan, is over there with the very latest. Paul, it's the first time the tarnished has spoken any details since the decision was made to send this file to the DPP. What exactly did he have to say? Well, the Tonista has been out of the country since Sunday. He's in the middle of this big trade mission, which he's heading up for IDA Ireland. And he's, he was here today in Google's headquarters in Sunnyvale, California, where he was handing over a special recognition award to the Google chief executive. But of course, questions about this affair were put to him today. This is the first time that he's had a chance to respond to it or the first time he's chosen to speak about it since Gardy sent the file to the DPP. It's understood that no recommendation was made by the Gardy. Uh, Mr Varadkar said he was happy that this stage of the investigation had concluded and it was now before the DPP. But we asked him how did he feel about this and in particular the dynamic that now exists within government because there is that rotating deal between himself and Michal Martin for the Taoiseach ship and he's due to, be, to have become Taoiseach again in December well, when Michal Martin relinquishes it and the concern from his point of view presumably is if the DBP takes its time making a, a decision on how to proceed that this could really cause some difficulties around the cabinet table. This is what Leo Varadkar had to say a short time ago here at Google headquarters. Yeah, well, you know, I'm obviously very pleased that the Guard investigation is now over. Um, it was a very long, uh, very thorough one. Uh, and at the end of it, um, there was no recommendation that there should be any charges. Uh, the matter, of course, is now with uh, the DPP and uh, will await a decision. 
Are you concerned, however, if it takes a considerable period of time for the DPP to make a decision that that complicates the dynamic within the government and the handover uh, to you in December? Um, well, I, you know, I think you can understand why I would prefer not to answer that question um, because uh, I don't want to say anything that could be interpreted as me putting pressure on the DPP in any way. Uh, so, you know, I'm not going to answer that question for that reason. But I, what I do want to say, and I want to re-emphasise this, uh, the allegations that were made against me were false. Um, they were politically motivated. Uh, I did not uh, commit any crime. I did not do anything corrupt. In fact, I didn't even do anything self-interested. Uh, and I think when this is over, that will be clear to any reasonable person. So Mr Varadkar saying he didn't commit a criminal offence in his view, he didn't do anything corrupt or even anything that you would define as self-interested, but undoubtedly this is going to be something that hangs over him for a period of time and could well complicate matters around the, the Cabinet table. Mr Varadkar spoke about a number of other issues here today on the row around turf. He said a balance had to be achieved by the government and he didn't want to see the baby thrown out with the bathwater on the issue. We also asked him, considering he's here in Google today and all this talk about energy sustainability, about the big tech companies and their data centres in Ireland. A lot of them have data centres there. A lot of them want to put in additional data centres. And he said he believed that given the context and the concerns about energy security that Ireland would have to slow down the process behind the planning and the building of those data centres for a couple of years whilst Ireland builds up its uh, renewable capability. He said he had been told by the big tech companies here this week and he's spoken to, to nearly all the significant ones in terms of Microsoft, Amazon, Google and also today he's meeting with Facebook's uh, parent company Meta that they had all expressed to him the desire to have data centres where they have their employees and they have many, many employees in Ireland. So that's potentially a source of tension between the government who have really been love bombing the big tech companies here this week and those tech companies over the next few years. Paul Colgan in California, thank you for speaking to us this evening. We'll leave it there. Now, new data from the Residential Tenancies Board and the ESRA shows that rents for new tenancies nationally rose by 9% in the last three months of last year when compared to the same period a year earlier. In the capital, the average annual rent is now significantly higher than the annual full-time income of a person on the minimum wage. Well, in studio to debate the issue is Labour Party Senator Annie Hoey, Fianna Foyle Senator and Spokesperson for Housing Mary Fitzpatrick, Assistant Professor of Social Policy in NUI Maynooth Rory Hearn and Political Editor for the Irish Independent Philip Ryan. You're all very welcome to the programme. Philip, I'm going to start with you. What exactly are renters paying in this country now? Yeah, it's some pretty big figures. Um, strangely though, the, the increase over the last three months, rents have gone down slightly across the country. But when you compare them year on year from this date last year, uh, the, the rent in Dublin now is €1,972 a month. That's the average rent in Dublin. That drops uh, a lot more for outside Dublin, down to €1,104. But like the, as you said in your opening clip, the, the, the figures just aren't sustainable when you have people who are on a minimum wage trying to pay these, these rates uh, at, at staggering prices uh, throughout the city especially. And even in rural Ireland where you have further and, and more excessive bills possibly in, in certain areas. And by and large, Philip, I suppose it's always worth remembering, this is an issue that affects younger people. They tend to be the majority of renters in this country. Mm. Well, this is it, yeah. And uh, while it's, uh, I suppose, an employee's 
jobs market out there, some of the, 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 the salaries and the money that you're getting just really aren't going to match this. And it's not going to give you the room to, to save, to, to have some disposable income just to enjoy yourself at the weekend. So it's getting tighter and tighter for people out there. And, and it goes back to that uh, thing that's, uh, that's said um, every now and again that um, it is a generation, the younger generations out there are no longer going to be richer than their parents. They're going to be a lot poorer and struggle a lot harder. Well, speaking of uh, renters, Glenn Murphy is a journalist for the Irish Times. Uh, Glenn, thank you for speaking to us on The Tonight Show. Tell us about your experience of uh, renting in Dublin and your search to find your most recent um, rental property. Thanks very much. Uh, first, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate the chance to, uh, to speak about this. It's something that does affect multitudes of young people across the country. Like you just said, it is a majority of young people that are uh, renting at the moment, I'm renting in uh, Stony Batter in the city centre, and it's been a colossal effort to try and get this place. And uh, we're immensely grateful, and we recognise uh, how fortunate we are to get the place at all. But our search began. Uh, my friend and I first started looking for this iteration of our rental experience uh, 14 months ago, just over 14 months ago in January 2021. Uh, we both moved home during COVID uh, because we were both living in other rental accommodation at the time. Uh, my housemate was living in the house uh, on the outskirts of Dublin. I think he was living with six other people at one point. Um, I was living in, close to the city centre, but in a fairly small apartment uh, with two other people. And, you know, those, those situations were fine pre-COVID, but the longer remote working became the norm and the longer it was apparent this, we were in this for the long haul, we both decided to take the chance to move home to save money as a lot of people did, maybe not as many people as we expected to. You know, there wasn't maybe the mass exodus that was talked about in mid-2020 didn't really come to fruition. Um, but we moved home to simply be with our families at a very difficult time and to, you know, save money as well and focus on other areas of our lives. But we began looking again in January 2021 when we were thinking, OK, maybe we'll be back in our offices this year or, you know, my friend changed jobs as well. So his circumstances were different again. But um, it was 14 months of looking every single day on uh, the property websites, sending emails, sending follow up emails, ringing estate agents directly, even though nearly every ad you see will tell you do not ring email only. And um, there, you know, it was just we were desperate, like, you know, we were really trying to get something that was suitable because we were really keen to avoid going into random house shares again. Um, as because we're, you know, we're both in our late 20s now, we wanted to feel sort of a little bit more grown up, for lack of a better description. Yeah. And Glenn, what was your, your, your budget? Real, well, I had the meter on daft set at, I think it was 1700 for the email notifications, but obviously we couldn't afford that. That was more a case of, oh, this is in case we see something that's 1605 a month, you know, um, instead of 1600. Really, 1600 was the absolute tip top that we could go to. And it was something that uh, we very nearly did reach uh, at the moment. We're paying 1550 a month and we split that almost exactly even. And obviously there's bills and everything else on top of that yet. Uh, we're only in here a few months. So we've yet to get our first big energy bill. So we're a little bit anxious about that uh, whenever that might land in the coming days. Um, you know, we're paying for uh, broadband and stuff as well because I still work from home some days. Mm. Uh, so a decent broadband connection was essential. But um, yeah, our, our absolute budget was 1600 a month. More often than not, you were seeing listings on daft.ie for maybe 12 properties, 10 properties mm. at a time that were beneath that threshold. Uh, 
you are a college graduate, you're working, you said, for the Irish Times, you have a good job, a regular wage. I'm sure you have aspirations to own your own home. Are you able to save? Are you hopeful that you'll be able to do that in the next couple of years? In terms of owning my own home, I'm, I'm really not sure. Um, I don't know how many people my age really realistically aspire to that, um, especially as, you know, if you're a single person, if you don't have a partner, uh, then that's, it's even harder again because the system is generally geared towards couples and that kind of thing anyway. Um, you know, it's saving has been difficult since moving back to Dublin. Not impossible, but at the same time, not as much as I'd like to, you know. Mm. Um, it, yeah, it, it, it has been a challenge readjusting, um, especially after living at home for oh, a right. year and a half. That's a massive change. Uh, Glenn, uh, good luck with the new house. I hope it all works out for you and, and thank you for speaking to us. Um, I want to go thank to you. my panel. Rory, I have to say, when I first uh, read Glenn's story earlier today, my initial reaction was 1550 for a two-bed in Dublin. Wow, what a bargain. Are we becoming more and more conditioned to these high prices? Well, I think we are, um, unfortunately, but I think the problem for renters is that they're the ones paying these rents. And you're now talking about, you know, an average rent of 2,000 a month in Dublin. You would need to be earning 120,000 a year for that to be considered affordable, which is a third of your, your take-home pay per month. Now, yeah. that's if you're looking to rent this by yourself. If you're re looking to rent it by yourself, but again, the point being made, you know, housing, is it just being provided for couples? What happens to individuals? How can they afford to live? And I think, you know, we talk a lot about the cost of living crisis. This is a cost of survival crisis for renters. Renters are being pushed into homelessness, into hidden homelessness, into poverty. We even have renters going to food banks to try and survive. It's not sustainable at these rents. And the really, um, I think, worrying thing is that there's no sign of them falling. And the main supply of new units coming on board is the Build to Rent Investor Fund ones, which are all at these 2,000 plus per month rents. So and what percentage of people's incomes are they spending on rent at the moment? Well, in terms of an income, if you look at someone, if they're on, for example, 80,000 a year, and they were paying the average national rent, they would be spending a third of their take-home pay on rent. So if you start going down to someone on, on a rent of 40,000, or sorry, an income of 40,000, they could be spending 60% plus of their take-home pay. You know, that is just, as I said, absolutely unsustainable. And the really, I think, disappointing thing, we saw the recent TSRI report showed a number of problems that um, a significant proportion of landlords, a third of landlords in the RPZ areas were breaching the, uh, the RPZ, RPZ rules. But I think the big issue is, is that... the rent pressure zone. The rent pressure zone, sorry, the RPZ, the rent pressure zone. I think the big issue we have here is that where is this going? that there is no sign of this, uh, um, you know, rents, being, uh, rents falling. So I think that we need to see real measures like a rent freeze, even rent reductions. Okay. And I think as well, the issue of supply, where is the supply going to come from? The private market is not doing it, and I think the state has to step in. And um, there was also a very interesting report from the CSO, which showed that um, I think a third of renters who aren't receiving any state supports are in poverty after they pay their rent. Yes, that is it's absolutely, absolutely true. We are seeing a situation where now renters, and, and you talked about the aspiration to own their own home, that has been removed because of these rents, because renters can't afford to save. And the state also, the state is paying a third of landlords' rents in this country to people who are on HAP, 
or RAS who also have to pay top-ups. But of those tenants who get estate support in the private rental sector, a half of those are in poverty as well after they pay their housing costs. So this is really is a cost of living crisis that, as I said, is a cost of survival crisis for renters. And I suppose, Annie, we used to think about renters as college students or recent graduates. That's really not the case anymore, is it? No, no, I think we've renters the whole way, um, the whole way through the age spectrum. And, and, and I don't even want to think about people talk about it coming down the line of older people and pensioners, but there are now older people and pensioners who are renting or are looking into renting and don't know how they're going to manage that on you know, their state pension or whatever pension they have. And when we talk about housing, I think we sometimes tend to talk about it in a quite a familial kind of a way. We think it's always you know couples and children and this kind of nuclear idea. There are single people and there are elderly people and there are people who want one bedroom and, and, and that diversity of housing. And when you have a housing market that's yeah. being built, as we've talked about, towards just a rent market and just you know a standard kind of setup that's going to lock a whole load of people out. Uh, Mary we listened to what everybody said mm. you listen to what Glenn has to say mm. I was reading David McWilliams in the Irish time at the weekend he said the state has completely lost control mm. of the housing market completely lost control is this not further evidence of that? It's a really serious issue and that's why the state is investing 20 billion euros over the next four years to massively increase the state's role in the provision of housing to try and rebalance it to make housing more accessible, more affordable and more secure. For people of all demographics, we talk about young people, but Annie is correct. Middle-aged people, elderly people. That's why we need a massive, and that is what is the government has committed to. It's the big change since the last general election that Housing for All will bring a massive state intervention in the provision not just of social housing, but also of affordable housing. Affordable okay, housing uh, that, I suppose, is down the line, Mary. Sorry it's to cut across you, but it is right. down the line, isn't it? It's well, not helping well, people well, today paying €2,000 on average for a new tenancy in Dublin. No, no. What is helping people today is the HAP and the rent allowance, unfortunately. That is what is helping tens of thousands of low and middle income renters to afford it. It's unaffordable. That's why we're spending 20 billion to try and make housing more affordable. The affordable cost rental, which is real today, we already have developments of affordable cost rental where you have rents at 1,200 euros. It's but I think you'll accept, Mary, that this isn't a problem for just those uh, in receipt of HAP. You know, no, the people are not in receipt that's of HAP and are paying 2,000 euros. And that's what the affordable month. cost rental is targeted at. It's people who actually don't qualify for social housing. So people who are earning a single person. How many of those are available, above, affordable cost rental? How many of those are available on the market? So the there moment? has never been any pri prior to our introduction of the legislation just last year. And now this year we are aiming to deliver at least 1,000. But already there are developments in Enniskerry Road, in Balbriggan, in Kildare, in Parkwest. We need a lot more of them. And actually, what, where we need them is in my constituency. Glen is in Stony Batter, in Dublin Central. Oh, Devony Gardens is a prime site. It's a state-owned site, so it is where we want to deliver a thousand okay, right, jobs. Sinn Féin, who are complaining, Sinn Féin, who are complaining, are objecting to it. They have delayed and objected on that site. We need affordable cost rental in the city. We need it all across the country, but we absolutely need it in the city, and we need it in Dublin Central. Rory. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I don't doubt Mary's, you know, absolute sincere commitment to, you know, addressing the housing issue. But I think, unfortunately, the government, as, I, as far as I see it, and analysing housing for all, the plan, is still locked into an over-dependence on the private market, and in particular on the private rental market. And this has meant that if you look at policies, for example, the, app, the failure to put in a rent freeze, you know, a complete rent freeze, including a rent cap on new um, units coming to the market, because that's which is 
pushing up market rents. They have refused to do that because of this idea that they would deter investor fund supply if they controlled rents. The well, other issue... It's not unconstitutional. You could do it on a temporary basis if you wanted to, like that was done in COVID to, to, during COVID. To really COVID. do it effectively. I mean, if we did it on a temporary basis, you know this yourself, we all know this, that it's this mixed messaging to the small landlords. 80% of our landlords own one or two properties. They're small landlords. One of the reasons we have the instability in, in the, in okay. the private Philip, rental sector no, is because small landlords are leaving. It's really important. Yeah, just have, if landlords, if landlords want to leave the market, the state should say, fine, we'll buy your unit we keep the tenant in place, and then you don't have this worry. The, okay, the state Philip, is doing sorry, that Philip. through the local authorities. We are doing that. How many landlords? We are doing okay, that sorry, already. Go to Philip here. Philip, landlords. How many small landlords? Not these institutional landlords. Yep. How many of those are leaving the market? There's We're been, hearing there's an exodus. Yeah, a huge amount of landlords are leaving the market for various reasons. Some of them that we've been discussing here, um, because of the, the rent controls that are brought in, the various taxes that are being hit. Out. Mm. It's like these guys are doing it because they're wanting to make a few quid. Like this is, it's a business to them in some regards. It's their pension. A lot of people are renting out houses because it, it gives them more money. And like there has been an aspect of demonizing landlords over the last few years. So it is pushing them out. There's also kind of some more positive reasons for it, if you could say, that like tenancies are lasting a little bit longer and that's why people, there's, there's not as much turnover. But there, there, there is a problem with like, there's, there's consequences for various decisions and policies implemented by government, and some of them are, that it's, it's forcing people out of this market. Um, one of the difficulties I'd say is that landlords, these small landlords that we're talking about, and it's them who are leaving the market, that they mm. are treated quite differently to institutionalised landlords in this country. Well, yeah, look, it's far more profitable to be an institutionalised landlord, to, to have all those investment funds, the various uh, tax deals that are there for you as well. That, 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 that's the case. That is the, there's um, huge incentives to do that. These guys were brought in during the crash because there was no one kind of building the houses or no one um, providing the accommodation and they did come in and, and built up all these uh, various um, buildings and accommodations and again they're not a charity they're businesses they're coming in trying to make money so you can give out about them and, and what they do but it's really on the government to introduce the policies to either dissuade them to do what they're doing or discourage them and, and get more different types of enterprise in. Rory? Yeah I think there's the again this comes back to like the number of landlords who left we, there was in the region of 5,000 eviction notices to tenants served over the last three years. I would calculate that's probably the most amount of evictions of tenants we have seen in this country since the foundation of the state. And there are measures that could be done. As I said, a rent freeze, rent reduction, Berlin has done it, a ban on evictions in sale. These measures would have immediate impacts. And as I said, for those landlords that want to leave, that it is their pension, it is their investment, the state could have a fund in place. And, and Mary is right, it is happening on a very limited basis. Okay. It needs to be done on a much wide, more widespread basis. But fundamentally, but the sorry, problem just, is... Sorry, just to yeah. be clear, sorry, the rent freeze. Yes. What does that do to people who are renting at the moment? What does it do for them currently? Well, for, for example, if you're taking up a new tenancy, I think if there was a cap, on the new rents, not just existing ones, that would lead to a capping of rents. The part of the problem with the, the, um, the RPZ, the rent pressure zone measures, is that they're not implemented across the board. They're not been enforced. If you, we saw during COVID when there was a blanket rent cap and a blanket ban on evictions, everyone accepted it, tenants uh, and uh, landlords. And Mary argues about the constitution. 
I think okay. if it was done on a three-year basis, we're in an emergency, we have the Ukraine refugees, we have a housing emergency, it could be done constitutionally. Annie, the Taoiseach said today that there's an onus on everyone, and I think he meant everyone in the Dáil, all of the TDs and all of their party members, to facilitate the supply issue. Has that been a problem, that on the ground, um, some generally, I think, more left-wing politicians have been opposing developments because they're not the right mix um, of, uh, of housing? I think using mixes, it implies a very specific kind of opposition. I know that there have been people from across the things who will oppose things because there aren't going to be schools, there aren't going to be all of these things around them. They were in completely unsuitable locations. I think it's, I don't want to start blanket saying people oppose housing just because they don't like it in their backyard. Sometimes people oppose housing because they're bad developments. And we've seen before when there are bad. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Developments, there are long-term consequences to that. Well, I think a lot of the time it's that the mix... That's generally the issue. The mix isn't right, that there's not enough affordable and social housing or it's not completely affordable and social housing. Yeah, yeah, and like people will object in what way they want to object and... and, and but is that an issue? Is that holding up the supply? When clearly, as Rory says, look, supply is, is what we need. That's what's going to get us out of this. Yeah, we need supply, but we need... Good supply. We can't just willy-nilly throw houses around. And I say this as someone who supported any sort of um, uh, housing developments when I was in a local council situation. We recognised the need for that. But there has been, you know, we've reduced, you know, we're, we're removing the strategic housing developments because they weren't being utilised properly. They were kind of being put in and all sorts of, I don't know if they're somehow uh, in the most effective places, in the most effective ways that would have given the best benefit to communities and people are going to be living there. So I, I'm always very anxious about going, well, everyone's saying no to everything or else everyone's saying yes to everything. Like, we do have to look at things in a balanced way. And I think actually, across Mary, you the say board, this is people an issue. want... 
I, I, I do think it is an issue, and I think O'Devney Gardens is a really, really prime example of it, where you've got state-owned land that can deliver over a thousand homes. That's been lying idle for more than a decade, you know, and now we're at the final stages and it will be a mix of social and affordable and private homes. And uh, it is, and there will be a community crash, but it's taken more together. than a decade. Absolutely. And that's that's just not acceptable. That's not acceptable for but the, the reason people. Accept that the reason that it, has, it was lying idle is because the previous government it was cutting austerity, you know, cutting investment. It wasn't building. We don't have a state construction company that could build on this public land. I think that it is legitimate. People are opposed developments, particularly the build to rent ones, on the basis that they don't see a future for themselves right. or their community in these developments. Uh, Philip, I just want to ask you very quickly about comments from Peter Fitzpatrick uh, today in the Doyle. He said, look, that maybe there might be an issue um, for the government when people see how quickly they're responding to the housing issue for Ukrainians. Is there a chance here that this could backfire on the government, their response? Well, it, it, it is a, a fair question, I think, that Peter Fitzpatrick has raised. And we saw this week the Cabinet signed off on sweeping powers for local authorities to, mm. to, to, to kickstart and, and find more properties and accommodation. Now, a lot of it isn't going to be going directly to, to um, Ukrainian refugees, but they will be. It, it, it has been triggered by that, by the influx of people. And it would, it, it would make you question, why wasn't this done this time last year or the year before? I think All it right. was done. It was done. And there has been a massive increase in terms of the government's support to local authorities All to right. tackle the voids. That has been done. I think it is a divisive argument that's been pushed and it is really wrong. Uh, that's all we have time for on that particular uh, topic. My thanks to Rory. The rest of the panel will be staying with us and after the break, the ban on the sale of turf, a pivotal political issue or a case of all smoke and no fire. The debate over the ban of the sale of turf set the dial alight again today as the Taoiseach Michael Martin accused the main opposition of creating a circus over the issue. The Sinn Féin motion, however, to scrap the ban was defeated, 72 to 63, just in the last few minutes. So has the issue been blown out of proportion? And what next for the sale of turf? Well, Labour's Annie Hoey, Fianna Foyle's Mary Fitzpatrick and political editor of the Irish Independent, Philip Ryan, are still with us. And Philip... Given how dramatic the last you know, couple of days have been, given these mm. sort of heated exchanges that we heard about between Eamon Ryan and Fine Foyle and Fine Gael backbenchers, that motion this evening defeated and by all accounts, barely a mention of it in the Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael parliamentary party meetings. Well, I th think they all got it off their chest the day before when they, they had uh, Eamon Ryan in front of them and they decided to, to go easy on the Taoiseach. And look, the, the motion, these motions, I always find them a bit silly because you can really go into the doll and say anything in those motions, especially when you're in opposition. You could say, let's have free ice cream and you can put down a motion and if you get voted against, nothing's going to happen and you know it's not going to get voted in and you never have to enact it. So they're just a bit silly, a bit of political pantomime. And so it, nobody it, went over no one and goes, turned no one's right gonna, this evening and switched I don't sides? No, I don't think there's going to be many self-respecting Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael TDs who would actually leave the party over a, a Sinn Féin motion or any opposition motion for, for, for uh, that extent. But it is, it is a serious issue at the same time. It is something that I think a lot of TDs and senators felt was sprung on them, that they didn't, it kind of came out of left field, it appeared in the papers one weekend, and then... Uh, your party was, or your paper was reporting today that this was an issue that could collapse the government. It's a pretty well, big statement. Well, that was uh, members of Mary's party and others were, were threatening that, were saying this to Eamon Ryan, 
I'm not sure that it will though really. Um, look, there's a lot of people out there that the turf is important to them. It's the way to heat their home and, and, and it is the people, it, it is kind of people a little bit on the fringes who are a little bit older probably and, and kind of been doing this for years. And it's a practice in rural Ireland. It's kind of a tradition. And there are groups out there who will impact. A solution will be found. And, you know, I don't think anybody's going to be pulled out of their house for burning a few uh, bricks of turf. Uh, Annie, what was the Labour Party's position on this? Banned well, we, or not banned? We recognise that we, we are going to have to, at some point, you know, phase in the ban of, of burning turf. Like, that's, there's a reality of it. You can't burn turf if we're underwater. Uh, you know, there, there is a climate crisis and we have to get real about it. But when? That. When would the Labour Party suggest that that should be done? Well, uh, as far as we were aware, that this wasn't a ban on, you know, on turbary rights or, you know, people using their own turf. So, I mean, the, 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 this certainly seemed to have gotten blown into... It was a ban... My understanding is this was a ban on commercial sales, mm. uh, which is very different to a ban on people's individual, you know, on the turbary or their, their local use of turf. So, I mean... Mm. When, when there was a conversation being had about the ban on commercial sale, we, we weren't uh, objecting to that. But we do recognise that this uh, is a conversation that is taking away from the fact that people are in fuel poverty, mm. that there is supposed to be a really... Um, so you, sorry, just to be clear, the Labour Party has an issue with commercial sales, but you also have no issue with sort of small-scale um, selling or sharing of turf. Well, we recognise that it has to be phased out. Uh, it does have to be phased out over time. We, the Labour Party is... Again, what, you know, what time? That is the question. Now, <laughs> well, I mean, this, this was a pan. Was it September they were going September to? September it was yeah, to begin, September, but I don't like think it comes in automatically. Yeah. And, and Like, the issue here as well is, is that they're trying to focus on these smoky coals. That's, that's the target of this ban. Uh, the issue um, around turf getting brought into it, because I don't think initially that they were going to ban turf, but the coal... This is a, a European issue as well. So that the, the coal companies uh, would have threatened to sue, to say, why are we being treated differently? This is kind of uh, unfair advantage given to, to turf companies. So, like, that's one of the issues as well. And, and anything we do with the regulations around um, any changes or exemptions or derogations we put in, we're still going to have to go to the European Commission and, and ask and them... And the teacher referred to that this evening, And ask them if he? this is OK. He also it's said, look, this is all off the table for the rest of 2022, so they bought themselves some breathing well, space. Well, this is it, yeah. Let's um, someone else be Taoiseach. Mary Fitzpatrick, sometimes in government you really don't need the opposition, do you? You can make, you know, an absolute shambles out of something all by yourselves. And, and the government did on this issue. Well, I think the... You'd have to accept that. I, I, I think uh, politics is a messy business at the best of times, right? We all recognise that. And when you're dealing with issues that are as enormously impacting as climate change... And people's individual rights and traditions, very, very important. Um, that's, a, that's a hard marriage to make, OK? Um, the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party, for its part, the senators and the TDs, they are of their communities. They know their communities. They know the importance in their communities They're also of part these of a coalition. Absolutely, and they take that responsibility very seriously. And that's why we conduct our business in a very professional way with our partners in government. Well, I, and, I and don't think anybody would call the handling uh, of this turf issue professional, to be honest. Well, I think from the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party's perspective, it has been nothing but business-like. So it's the Green Party that's I, the coalition I, I, down. The Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party has engaged in a very business-like and professional way with both our partners in government. We take, the, we take the role and the responsibility very seriously. And what the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party has done working with our partners in government is delivered a solution here that can work in, in the immediate and in, well, in the longer is term. Is there a solution here, Philip? Like, do we have clarity at the moment? 
Well, like Annie said, the understanding is um, people's rights to what, to what is on their land will still remain. You, you can't just Individual people. rights will remain. But yes, but we're talking about what's not been spoken about, yeah. though, is what has also been secured, is the funding for a just transition, the funding to invest in real climate action. Okay, that okay can but look, we want real. to stick to the issue of turf. Is there clarity now? Uh, I, I think there was always meant to be clarity that uh, people's ability to mm. cut turf on their own land wasn't, on their own bog, wasn't going to be yeah, affected. The issue really in debate was whether you could sell it. Yeah, if, if you're going to be able to give it to neighbours, if you're going to have some local arrangements in place. There is this idea of um, exempting people in communities of less than 500 people. That, that's, that, that doesn't cover a lot. It's a, it's a pretty blunt instrument. And Fianna Fáil is saying, look, we're never going to support that anyhow. Yeah, it, it's, it, I'm not sure how many uh, communities it would affect and you're going to have people, outliers and things like that. There's some talk about increasing that, making the number bigger. But again, this is all EU commission. They could shoot it down. There is talk as well, like I think you brought up, about um, grants and places that just in transition yeah. encourage people to do different things with their, their bogs. But, but what are you going to do? Like set up a bog snorkeling? Well, they've, uh, they've, 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 they've bog parks. Uh, and, 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 but, but the just transition is very, very important. And the fuel poverty that I think you mentioned yourself, really, really important. And that's what we're committed to delivering on. OK, what has this done, do you think, for relations uh, between the three parties? And what has this done, uh, Philip, for the green agenda in rural Ireland? Well, well, the green agenda in rural Ireland, it depends on... Well, there's a lot of people who are supportive of it as well. You know, it's not just... Um, you can't tire everyone with the same brush and say everyone who lives in rural Ireland doesn't care about the planet because they do. They actually live off the planet more than people living and in the city. And, and, and they, yeah, they protect it and cherish it. Um, I think one thing from the Green Party's point of view this week, they did, I would uh, back up what Mary said about the meeting Eamon Ryan had with, uh, with, with the Greens or with um, Fianna Fáil was with a bit more constructive, a bit more um, uh, good working relations. While it got a little bit personal in Fine Gael, there was a bit of heckling, there was a lot of shouting, a lot of raised voices and I, I, I'm not sure how, how well that went down on either side, really. All right, well, that's all on that particular topic. My thanks to Philip Ryan for joining us. In other news tonight, the EU has accused Russia of blackmail as the country made the decision to halt gas exports to Poland and Bulgaria in the first move of its kind since the invasion of Ukraine. Well, a little earlier, I spoke to EU correspondent Rosie Burchard and began by asking whether this will be indicative of a wider response from Russia. Well, EU countries' representatives met today to discuss emergency planning here. And we know that Poland and Bulgaria, the two countries affected by this decision from Gazprom today, can receive supplies now from neighbouring EU member states. That's something European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen announced, likely also in a bid to try and calm the markets, because the markets certainly did not like this announcement from Gazprom. Now, Warsaw seems quite sure that it can weather this storm. Uh, for now, it says that its gas reserves are filled to at least three quarters. And the country's energy minister has been seeking to kind of quell domestic fears, saying that there's no real uh, risk of shortages in Polish households. In Bulgaria, slightly different situation. It really imports the vast majority of its gas from Russia. So it's scrambling to try and find new suppliers. Its prime minister has been on the phone with his Greek counterpart today looking for cooperation in that area. Now, of course, that is something only for the short term. And if Russia moves to turn off the taps for other EU countries, there could indeed be a very difficult road ahead. What is the implication for a country like Ireland, which obviously doesn't import gas directly from Russia? 
Well, the EU as a whole has historically been dependent on Russia for its gas imports, but of course there are huge differences in that level of dependency. For example, Germany and Hungary are dependent on Russia, but as you rightly point out, Ireland is not. Now, overall, however, among these 27 nations, there is a kind of one-for-all sense here, and the bloc is trying to ra radically reduce its dependence on Russian fossil fuels by two-thirds in this year. And the details of that plan are going to be presented by the European Commission in a couple of weeks' time. They all affect countries differently, but they're likely to be going around kind of three main areas. So first of all, diversification. The EU has been in talks with countries including Qatar and Norway to diversify energy supplies. That's less likely to in impact, of course, a country like Ireland. But more broadly, the EU will be looking to radically reduce demand for energy as a whole. And that's something that will be demanded of all countries and perhaps an ask directly to consumers. And then beyond that, of course, there's this move towards a green transition. Brussels says the way out of dependence on Russia is through investment in renewables. And European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen says every euro invested in renewables is a down payment on energy independence for the future. But Kira, of course, that green transition simply is not happening overnight. So in the meantime, those high gas and energy prices are likely to remain that way amid all of this uncertainty. Uh, briefly, Rosie, um, there's fears growing today that Russia is trying to destabilise Moldova. Are there concerns that Europe and NATO might get drawn into a wider conflict here? Well, Russia has just over the past few days essentially been accusing NATO members of engaging in a proxy war against Russia by arming Ukraine. Now, NATO members would deny that. They say that they are arming Ukraine, but they are not sending any NATO troops into Ukraine precisely for the reason of trying to avoid escalating this conflict into a bigger war where NATO allies and Russia face each other down directly. That's why there are no NATO boots on the ground in Ukraine, but certainly plenty of concern for Moldova. It's neither a member of NATO nor the EU. So for some time, at least, it has been considered the country that could be at risk uh, if Moscow sets its sights beyond Ukraine. Rosie Burchard, we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you for speaking to us. Well, Annie and Mary will be staying with us. And after the break, the economic and safety implications of the shortage of taxis. You're very welcome back. Well, the shortage in the supply of taxis poses a challenge for the nighttime economy as, as well as many people who are struggling to secure a means of getting home safely. Annie Howey and Mary Fitzpatrick are still with us and we're also joined via Skype by Vinnie Cairns, CEO of NXT Taxis and a former Vice President of the Irish Taxi Drivers Federation. Evany, you're very welcome to the programme. We're hearing anecdotally that a lot of taxi drivers have left the industry and that there's many others who are simply refusing to work late at night anymore. Is that what your drivers are telling you? Is that your experience? There's, there's a mix, really, in it, Kira. The trend started as, as far back as 2011, and from 2011 right up to 2020, the number of taxi drivers dropped from 23,777 down as low as 19,352. Now, that was just prior to COVID. Since COVID, I would estimate that we've also lost 
anything up to 20% of the drivers that remained at that stage, you have to take into consideration that 15% of taxi drivers at the start of COVID were over 70 years of age. So they really got a bad scare throughout COVID. We've had quite a number of taxi driver deaths through COVID. And the elder drivers, they've just finished up. They've called it a day and they've retired. And also a lot of um, your drivers, you've said, have chosen to leave the industry because they've gone to what they perhaps find more secure jobs with you know, more sociable hours. Is this the case? Yes, Kerry, you have an awful lot of taxi drivers that would have licences to drive trucks and buses, and they've gone working for the haulage companies who were very busy right through COVID. And uh, quite a number of them actually went working for the likes of Dublin Bus and Bus Airden. So uh, a lot of taxi drivers also were ex-tradesmen, so they've gone back on their tools and they're on the building sites now because the building is booming again. What about working on you know, a Friday night or Saturday night? We've heard also anecdotally that taxi drivers have real concerns about working those hours. They simply don't feel safe anymore. Um, I suppose safety is a major factor for taxi drivers today. Taxi drivers over the years were always very good at handing people after consuming a lot of alcohol. But it's very, very difficult to, to figure out how somebody's going to behave now, especially uh, using strong drugs such as cocaine, crack cocaine. Um, I just want to put your points to our panel uh, here, Vinny, if you just could stay on the line. Annie, look, if it's you know dangerous for drivers um, who are in their own vehicle, it's just as dangerous for members of the public out of the street, on the streets at night, um, in the early hours of the morning, unable to get a taxi. Yeah, it is. And we, I think we can all remember times where we were trying to get taxis. I think particularly over Dublin City Centre over the past weekend, there were just thousands of people trying to get taxis. You know, there were concerts and gigs. We have a big summer coming up of gigs and music and everyone's going to be flooding back out again. So I think it's a real concern for people. I know I've spoken to parents who are worried about the, you know, young people going out and they're like, how are they going to get home? We don't have what I would say fantastic nightlink services. Uh, in the city, never mind in the rest of the country, um, in terms of people being able to get home safely by public transport. Um, obviously, we're talking about taxis here. And I think those are very fair and reasonable concerns. Um, I think during the COVID pandemic, and I, I was at, uh, you know, attended a couple of taxi protests that were outside uh, the Dole. And I feel like there was almost... I don't want to be putting words, almost a virtue being made out of not listening to taxi drivers. You know, they were really struggling during the COVID-19 pandemic. It was a sector that was, look, everywhere was struggling. And, and they were constantly coming forward, asking for support, asking for help. So it's no wonder, therefore, then, that, they, that, that they've left for a variety of reasons, as, 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 as Binia said. And it's worrying, too, for the nighttime economy that has struggled so much, because I know a lot of people will just be less inclined to come into the city centre if you think, you know, you're going to have to wait a long time, perhaps walk a significant distance before you can get a taxi home. But it's also even for staff. You know, there were, um, you know, businesses have been talking about staff, hospitality staff sleeping overnight because they can't get home. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about a nighttime economy and we're talking about, you know, those conversations, really welcome conversations about extending licensing laws to, you know, 6am or whatever it is, People have to be able to get home. We can't just expect them to wait until the buses start and then head home. You know, we, we, we have to have a really holistic approach to supporting businesses and the economy getting back under. And if, if, if taxi drivers can't afford to go we can't, and we're not investing in public transport, we're just going to create a bit of a mess. And, and it's just, it's not what anyone wants. People want to be able to go out. They want to be able to enjoy themselves. Taxi drivers want to be able to make a living. And, and 
Companies want their staff to be able to come and work. People are losing staff because they can't get home at night. And, and Jim O'Callaghan was also speaking today in the Dáil. Um, he brought up sort of the dangerous levels of unprovoked uh, attacks in Dublin city centre. So safety is a really con concern mm. here, Mary. Yeah, safety is a real concern um, and the sustainability of, of the taxi service is a real, real concern. And I think we need the National Transport Authority to recognise the transport the taxi service as a really valuable and essential part of our public transportation system. It's not a, a, a small legacy issue. It has to be actually recognised within the city as being key to our public transport services. And um, the taxi drivers that, that I've spoken to, I mean, the numbers that Vinnie speaks about, I've heard numbers quoted as high as 40% of taxi drivers have left and a further 25% are choosing not to work at night time. That's, that's a massive, you know, depletion of what was a really important essential public transport service. So we need the National Transport Authority to actually engage with the taxi drivers, directly with them, to support them. There isn't one simple fix here, but there's absolutely a crisis that has to be addressed. Uh, Vinny, what will bring drivers back into the industry? Well, I suppose there has to be some some form of a roadmap so that people coming into the business know that there is a future in the business, first of all. We've seen hauliers, bus drivers uh, having protests on the M50 about the, the cost of fuel. And here we are in the taxi industry and we haven't seen a fair increase since 2017. That is a, an absolute disgrace. An awful lot of drivers now will not go out and drive during traffic hours because they're burning more fuel. It's as simple as that. Now, there has been there a recommendation, Vinny, hasn't there, that there will be a fair increase of 12%? Yes, and that, that's to the annoyance of taxi drivers also because we've waited since 2017 to now to be granted a 12.5%. And I know it sounds like quite a substantial amount, but for the period of time we've been waiting, it's actually not we would far better prefer to see fare increases coming annually at a rate of maybe 2% or something like that, that the public will accept it uh, immediately and that it can be implemented quickly. The fare increase that they're talking about now, I do not believe that that will come into vogue until maybe next November, probably even December. And by the time they get around seeding all the taxi meters, could be well into the new year. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, my thanks to Vinnie, Annie, Mary and all of our guests this evening. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning from all the late team here. Good night and do take care. is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.